I'm so excited to be with you here today. I love that there's a little stair step up. You get to pop up here. Um, well, hey, I'm so thankful for Veritas Dayton because the thing is we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And the first thing that should always manifest from that is just friendship. And that sounds terrestrial, but it's super uncommon in the whole world of people who just say, hey, I want to be friends. I want to know you, and I want to know you in such a way that we can share joy, we can share fellowship, we can share life together. So I thank you for being a church that wants to share life with a, uh, with a coming church in Citizens. Um, I like to say I am a, a pastor at Sojourn, pastor in Next Steps, and I'm also a, a lead pastor of an imaginary church called Citizens. So it keeps me really busy uh, lately. I hate the word busy, but life is full, life is good. I have two children, a little three-year-old named Eloise and a baby named Tyler, so I would fit in well here, as y'all have many, many blessings and children. So Today, we are going to talk about Nehemiah 8, and y'all have been knocking and rolling through the book of Nehemiah. It is not an easily preached book, but it has important messages about what the people of God are to do. What are we to be about? How are we going to live our life? And one thing I love about Veritas, and I've loved about visiting here and being among your people, is I have never had a bad meal. Y'all are a people that loves to eat, and I like that. I, obviously, I like that. I am a guy who loves to eat as well. And the thing is, I don't think we're alone. There's a huge culture shift in America, especially over the past 20 years, of an obsession in, a, in, in, in many ways a good way with food, of health food, of tasty food, and you see it all over our TVs. There's shows about how to make a great dish, and there's shows about people competing against each other to make a great dish, whether it's Top Chef or Master Chef or beating Bobby Flay. Don't like Bobby Flay. I like to see him get beat. I think we all do. But every dish, to get it to high and fine dining, is usually evaluated in three ways. Taste. It has to taste good. Texture. It has to bring a variety to things. And then finally, there's this presentation. What's it look like? Does it look like something you want to eat? And that's what all these shows evaluate on. And the highest measure a chef can get to, the highest measure that they're aiming for and working for, is to look at the terroir of the food. And that's a fancy French word to just say, where did this food come from? Because a master chef brings out that flavor. They want you to taste where this animal was raised or caught and taste how it lived its life and seasoned in a way that brings it out and cut in a way. And now all the vegetarians and vegans are sufficiently grossed out. Good thing terroir applies to our wine even more specifically, all right? Wine, what region of France is it from? What kind of grapes are used? What was the cultivation practice that got you to this certain terroir? And why I bring this up is this passage is asking the question, what is the terroir of God's word? Where is it coming from? What does it taste like? And where is it going? Because in Psalm 19.10, it says, Your word is sweeter than honey, O Lord. And I want that to be true for us today. I want that to be true in this passage. So please come in with me. Come into this word of God. And let's receive it together. Because the best possible sauce... And if you're a chef, if you cook a lot, you know the best sauce. It isn't in the kitchen. The best sauce isn't in a recipe book. The best sauce is our hunger. 
When you're hungry, you're ready to eat. And when you're ready to eat, the food always tastes good. And so the first thing we're going to look at is Nehemiah 8, verses 1 through 3. It will be up here in your bench Bibles, page 229. It will be on the screen. Because here's the setting. All of these people have now gathered before God. They've all gathered before God. And Ezra actually started teaching these people 13 years prior. In 458 BC, Ezra moved back and started teaching the word of God to these people who were like the remnant living there in Jerusalem. The people the Babylonians didn't want. The people who got left behind in the captivity living in and around Jerusalem, plus the people who came with Ezra. Ezra started teaching them in 458. And now 13 years of him teaching this people, this messy people, about who their God was. This is the scene. Nehemiah verse 1 through 3. And all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. And they came because they knew the law of God now. They knew it was the first day of the seventh month. And they gathered together. This is like 50,000 people in a square. 50,000 people in downtown Dayton. It would be a packed streets are flooded moment. And they told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, all 50,000, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak Till noon, as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened intently to the book of the law. When Ezra started out 13 years ago, it was so messy that it was breaking up families to hear the word of God and learn what obedience was. It was breaking up whole ways of lifestyles. They were the people of God, but they had no idea what that meant. But now 13 years later... We can learn from this people. It's 445 B.C., and these people are hungry for God's word. These people are ready for God's word. And we look, when we look in the text, there's three things that we can learn about being hungry for God's word. And the first one, look at verse 1 and 3 again with me. It says, And all the people came together as one before the water gate, and he read it aloud from daybreak to noon. These folks got their kids out of bed, got them dressed, got them fed, and got them down to the square of the city from outlying areas, from within the walls. They packed the square before the sun had even broke. And for some of y'all are like, that's not hard. My kid gets up at five. I got one of those. She's a true joy, true joy. But you get up and they got these big Jewish families and everyone they knew down to the water gate before the sun was up. They don't got streetlights, they ain't got flashlights, they ain't got cars, but they are a people who is ready for the word of God. They went from a people who are a mess into a people who had heard the law and started to organize their hearts so much that they said, hey, it's the first day of the seventh month, we are supposed to gather and we are here before the sun gets here. That's what it means to be ready for the word of God. I struggle to get out the door in the morning and these people are there with bells on. And the second thing we can learn is this. They demanded the word of God. They were ready and they demanded. Look at verse 1 again with me. 
They said, they told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. They said, stop fidgeting with your robes, Ezra, and go get the book. That's what it says. It says, go get the book. Ezra, we know you've been the law teacher, but we're ready to go. Go get the book. And how encouraging would that be? to JJ and Dan and Garrison, the other elders and all the people here at Veritas, of when you showed up here, when you got ready, you were ready, you were here, and you said, go get the book. I'm ready. Brian, let's sing the word. Come on, let's do it. Let's pray the word. I want to hear the word, and later I want to obey the word, and I want to be sent by the word. I want to be a people whose life rotates around the word of God, because that's what it means to be a people hungry for God. I can't think of a greater encouragement for a preacher of a church, for a people to say, hey, I'm here, I'm ready, go get the book. It's time to get started. Why? Because I need to hear from God. The only way we ever want that is if we actually believe we need it. That we're not sampling. That this isn't a show to entertain us, but this is the word to feed us, or we, lest we may die. Or lest we may sin against our God because we have not carefully stored the word of God in our hearts. And so the thing is, when we see, when we've been trained and discipled in the word of God, we become this hungry people just like them. And there's one more thing. Look at verse 3 again with me. It says he read it aloud from daybreak to noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. They weren't uh, just talking a big game. They didn't get there early for appearances. They were hungry, and that meant fighting to understand and listen attentively. The word just passing over us has no effect. The word listened to, understood, internalized has every effect. And so it's a big cause for us to evaluate. I had to evaluate my heart as I came to this text. I'm studying and I'm studying, and I started to wonder, how hungry am I really for Sunday? How hungry am I really when I'm not preaching? How hungry am I really to listen to other pastors and listen to other churches? How hungry am I really to be here? And how much of my heart is here because I wish to keep up appearances? How much of my heart is here because I want to be entertained? That I have favorite preachers because they bring the word more exciting than others? How, how, how much of me is mostly satisfied during the week in things other than the word of God? And so when I show up on Sunday, I don't even have an appetite for it. And those are hard questions for me to ask, for you to ask, to evaluate. How hungry are you really for the Word of God? Because the Word of God isn't like food. When we eat food, we get full and we don't want any more. God's Word, when we eat it, we actually get hungry for more. Our soul is less like a stomach and more like a fire. And God's Word is like flipping logs, dry logs, onto the coals of your burning heart. That's how you know someone is loving and walking after God. They get hungrier and hungrier for God's word. You should leave Sunday not full, but literally hungry for more, saying, I want to go to the next Sunday. I want to get to the next community group. I want to get to my devotional time again. Because that's what a hunger that burns up in you is like. Jeremiah 23, 29 says it like this. This is God's word. This isn't even Jeremiah. This is God's word. It says, not my... Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, like a hammer that shatters the rock. 
When God's love and mercy is coursing through his word, it starts to shatter the parts of us that don't love God. It starts to shatter the parts of us that trust things other than God. It starts to shatter the things we love more than God. And it starts to build an appetite. You want your heart like a furnace that's getting hotter and hotter and hotter to where you see and feel that God is the Lord of your life and his word is the only way forward. Think of your life like a big train, like those old-timey trains where there's those dudes in the movies just shoveling coal into the inferno. It's like, man, that guy got to keep shoveling or the train's not going to go. And that guy's like back-breaking, throwing the coal in the inferno of the train that heats the steam, which pulls the engine forward. When you feel stuck in your walk with God, that's not the time to run from Scripture. That's the time to run to it. And it's not even about the amount. It's about your heart being hungry and ready to receive it. You can read one psalm and get more than reading a whole book of the Bible. You can read a couple verses and take them as true, and it will transform your life more than being a scholar of great reading. We're not talking about becoming professors of theology. We're becoming the people of God who are hungry on Sunday, a community group, or small group, or home group, and hungry in our devotions. And so we look at the response of those hungry for the word and we dive into our sermon text knowing the setting. This hungry people has been receiving the word of God from daybreak to noon. Six straight hours of teaching. And they had 20 assistants more or less. These Levites walking among the 50,000 people. Helping them understand. It wasn't just a a performance art of Ezra. It was an understanding among the people. And look at verse 9 with me. Then the governor... Nehemiah the governor, and Ezra the priest, the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing all the people said, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. All the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. And the question has to come at the tip of your mind, at the tip of your tongue, why were they weeping? I thought they gathered their whole family for this event where literally their entire community, as many as could be there, were there. Why are they weeping at the law? This is what they wanted, right? They'd even built like a stand for Ezra just to do this work, like a big deck for him to preach over the people. And when they read the law, we need to understand they're reading Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are the books of Moses, the books Moses wrote. And that's what the law is. It's contained. It's the story of God with his people, but it's also the laws of how to live your life in the Old Testament. And the thing is, when you read the law for them and for us, there are three big uses of the law. And the first use of the law says, who is God? When you read the law, you learn who is God. And you learn that God is holy and his law is holy. That God is perfect so that he is not like us. He is other. And I want to take it further. That God is wild. He is free. He can do anything. He is eternal and limitless. He's the creator. He's the promise maker. He's a promise keeper. He's the conqueror of Egypt, the savior of God's people. And his law shows him to be not just morally perfect, but perfect in every imaginable way. And that's use one of the law that we discover who God is. But use two of the law stems from it. Use two of the law, or the second use, 
is why the weeping comes. Because as you discover that God is holy, we discover that we are not. There's no way to read the law and go, oh, I'm in a great place with God. There's no way to read all the laws of God and go, oh, I am morally perfect and acceptable. Instead, we do the opposite. And this is why they weeped. The law reveals who we are, that we're not holy. God is holy, but we are not. And we start to see just how far we really are from God. We may feel a low level that we're far from God all the time. But if you read God's law, suddenly it puts it in black and white. Literally, how far you really are from God. And if you're like, eh, I don't believe you. Turn to Exodus 20. Read the Ten Commandments. Wonder if you've done any of this or thought any of this to your heart. That is the distance you are from God. And no one will stand after that list. No one will stand after the Ten Commandments. And the worst part is, it's not just that our words, our ways, our decisions are sinful and have violated this or that. The law reveals something deeper. The law reveals that our hearts are broken. That something isn't working right anymore. That sin has conquered our heart and has taken us away from God. We see that we're lost. We see that we're broken. We see that we're not like God. The cost to see God in his holiness is giving up any hope that we're holy. The cost to see God in his holiness, the first use of the law, the price is to see that we're not. We will never see God for who he truly is until we see we who we truly are. It shows us where we actually stand. God's word is a mirror and that's the real you. No matter how many other messages there are in the world, God's word is a mirror that shows you the real you. And that's why it's so essential that we're hungry for God. And this is where mankind flinches. When we do law, the first use of law, it's like, that sounds pretty good. Second use, that sounds pretty bad. And this is where mankind flinches and keeps ourselves from the third use of the law. And there's two ways we keep ourselves and we short-circuit the law's work. The law should have three uses, but we short-circuit the work by this. Instead of acknowledging how bad it is, we just pretend it's not that bad. We fool ourselves and pretend, saying things like, I'm not that bad, it's fine, at least I'm better than him or her. At least I'm better than my sister. At least I'm better than my brother. At least I'm better than the other University of Dayton Flyer. At least I'm better than this other student. At least I'm better than this other grandparent. We deceive ourselves by pretending. Or the other way is we deceive ourselves by performing. And performing says, I'll try better next time. I'll perform better next time. And on the merits of my trying harder, I'll be acceptable to God. And that's two ways to take a deviation. That's two ways to not really see God as holy and not really see ourselves as sinful and thus miss the third use of the law. Because the third use of the law is this. We see how who God is. We see who we are. And then third, we see how great our need for Christ is. That the law does two things. It reveals this need for a Savior and then it promises us this Savior. It does both. It exposes us so dramatically that there's no way I'm going to make up this gap. There's no way I'm going to find my way back to God. That I see this great need for a Savior, but then it also promises us that Savior. And that's why when we take a look, we see you know this is becoming true in your life when you stop seeing your sins as horizontal and you start to see them vertical. 
When you stop seeing your sins just as horizontal and start to see them vertical, you're starting to see this in your life. I remember when I first started following the Lord, I had gone back to doing some heavy drinking. I went out with a night. I was on a date, and I'd embarrassed myself at this date night. I had had too much to drink, and I remember waking up and my head hurting in the morning, and I knew I had to go apologize to this date because I'd embarrassed myself and embarrassed her. But before that, I was a believer, and I realized I had broken fellowship with God and that I actually need to apologize and repent to God first, and then from that go apologize to others. And when your sin starts to break this heart, break our heart first, that's when the change is happening. That's how you know the third use of the law is becoming real. That you start to see your need for Christ because your sin becomes something between you and God that has consequences between you and other men and women. And so the story doesn't end here though. If we look back, let's look at verse 9 and 11. The story doesn't end here with Nehemiah. It doesn't end with people weeping at their sin. Instead, take a look what they say. It says, do not mourn or weep. For all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. They've been weeping over their sin. They've been weeping over realizing who God is and who they are. And Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. In three verses, he tells them three times, Don't weep. Don't grieve. Stop what you're doing. Today is holy, and we're going to celebrate before God. Talk about dramatic change of events. Six hours later, he's saying, all right, enough crying. We're done with this. Stop, stop, stop. It's time to party, party, party. And why does he do this? He He does this because God's word causes sadness at our sin, but it should give way to the joy of the God of our salvation. Because godly sorrow is a good thing, grieving our sin is essential, repentance is necessary, but these things have an end. These things have an end. To be convicted of sin shows God is not done with you. We shouldn't be all upset when someone comes to us and says, hey, you've sinned. We should go, no, thank you, because why? God is not done with me. I have room to grow forever. God is not giving up on me. And God is at work in my life. If you want to know if God's at work in your life, ask, are you repenting of sin? Are you finding the joy of your salvation on the other side of your repentance? That's how you know God's at work. That's how you know that God's working in you. 1 Thessalonians 4 says the will of God is your sanctification. The will of God is that we grow sanctified or holy over time. And if you want to know, is God working? Is he even real? Is he he growing in my life? One of the surest ways is to say, am I turning from my sin and turning to Jesus and finding forgiveness and hope and joy? That's how you know God's God's at work. And so the joy of your weeping turns to, to, to tears of, from weeping to joy because you know God's at work. See, our grief over sin has a limit, but God and his joy do not. There are no sins that outlast or outpace the grace of God. There are no sins that outlast or outpace the grace of God. We may have lots of horizontal consequences for our sin, but with Jesus... It stops at the cross. That you can find forgiveness and hope 
right there because your sin can't outlast him and it can't outpace him. His grace is greater than our sin. And there's a key phrase and concept coming over and over here. And it's a curious phrase. It says, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Or another translation would put it maybe even better. God's joy is your stronghold. The joy of the Lord is your strength. God's joy is your stronghold. That's the reason he gives that you can rejoice. That's the reason he can say, dry up your tears. Why? Because God's joy is your stronghold. Because here's the truth of this message. When God's word is received, you get the God of his word. God's not giving you some extra thing, because that's not the thing. The thing is, when you get God's word, when you receive God's word, you get God. If we wonder what God's like, we need to open our Bible and we have him. He's given us a word to be trusted. He's given us a word to put our hope in. Because when we get God's word, we get him. God is the reason we lift our head from mourning. God is with you and is his joy to be with you. Do you believe God actually enjoys you? I know I struggle to believe that. I struggle to believe God's delight is in me, as the scripture says. But that's why I need God's word to remind me. My heart's not going to remind me, but God's word sure will. See, God's joy, God's strength, the joy of God is that God has loved and enjoyed and had joy in eternity past forever. Between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, enjoying and loving and serving each other for all of eternity. And God's joy means that has overflowed in goodness to you. God is not giving you something else. He's giving you himself. And that's the joy of the law. That's the joy of the Bible. That's the terroir of God's word. Is this essence of God's word should feel like God's joy overwhelming and coming into your life. That's what Jesus is saying in John 7. He says, if anyone thirsts, come and drink of the well. Come and drink of this water. Come and drink. You can have as much God as you want. And that's what it means to be hungry and to let the fire build and build and say, Lord, where are more dry logs? Where are more things I can consume? Where's more of God that I can throw on the fire of my heart and experience the burn and experience the goodness of God's joy? And for some, this will look emotional. Some, it will look like contemplation. It doesn't matter how it comes out. It matters what's going in and how it's transforming what's in here in this season of your life. See, Nehemiah's people... They saw the third use of the law, and they didn't have Jesus yet. They placed their faith in the hope that God would make good on his promises to send a sacrifice to take away the sins of the world. They didn't have Jesus yet, but they put all their hope and all their faith that God would send a Savior. And you see it all over the book of the law. You see it all over the books of Moses. In Genesis 3, verse 15 We see that a son of Eve will come and crush Satan, sin, and death. In Genesis 12, we see Abraham's offspring, the singular offspring, will come and bless all the families of the earth. In Exodus 12, we see Jesus will be that Passover lamb that frees people from their sins and releases them out of Egypt. In Leviticus 16, we see Jesus is the true goat of the Day of Atonement that takes away the sins of Israel. And the priests would literally, the Day of Atonement's what they're preparing 
preparing for in this book. And the, the priests had literally put their hands on the goat and confess all the sins of Israel they could possibly think of. And then they'd hit the goat and it'd run out the door. And then they'd kill a goat too. And they'd say, we've killed a goat for the sacrifice of sin. We've had a goat run away from us to take the sins away. And Jesus would be both goats for you. That's the way it's in Leviticus. In Numbers 24, we see there's a true king coming to rule all the nations. In Deuteronomy 21, we have one of the craziest promises of Scripture. It says, everyone who is hung on a tree is accursed. And one day that would come true for Nehemiah, and it came true for us. That all the curses of the law, all the things they weeped at of their sins, and all the potential sins, and all the falling short of God's holiness, would all be hung on one tree in the man Jesus Christ. God who became man, born of a virgin Mary, who lived a perfect life, then died a sacrificial death for us, rose from the dead to bring us back to God. That is the third use of the law. That we'd see God for who he is holy. See who we are truly that we're not. And see that Jesus is coming and he's good and he's promised. And guess what? When God makes promises, God keeps promises. I make plans, they don't happen. When God makes plans, they always happen. And that's what he's done for us. That's why we look back in communion. We look right now in communion when we take the bread. And we look forward. We look forward. This is our celebration. He told them to go throw a party. Sunday morning's a party because we get the word of God, and then we get to literally take the bread and wine, remembering what has been done, remembering he's with us now, and remembering he's coming back, baby. We got a sure hope. We know the future. He's coming back. I don't know when. Jesus says no one knows when, but he's coming back, and he's coming back for us. See, look at verse 12 with us, and we'll hit here on the application. This is what God wants in response to this. And we'll break it down right here. It says, Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. They now understood the words that had been made known to them. So if we leave these up, I want to just point out three things. For today, no more tears, because God's mercy is right now. No more tears for God's mercy is right now. They eat, they drink, they dance because they know God is good. When God's people party in joy and in holiness, it shows that we serve a God of mercy and joy. You know what Dayton needs? It needs Christians to throw really good parties. Why? Because it says, I believe God created everything in this world and it's mine and I can use it. It says, sin is here and life is hard, but guess what? I have a hope in Christ so I can celebrate even on the worst days of my life. And it gives us forward, it points forward to one day there will be a great feast and there's room at the table for everyone. If you want to show Dayton the gospel, invite them into your home with a party. It shows no matter how hard life is, we're a people who are going home. Number two, it's right there. It says they send portions of food gifts to those who have nothing and that's in the law it says literally in deuteronomy if you throw a feast and there's family members there are people in your town who just can't make it they're sick they're they're too poor whatever they they just can't come you are to take some of what you have and send it so they're going to obey the law here but the here's the reason that's there here's the picture spiritually because god came and gave when we weren't interested and had nothing So those who can't, those who maybe aren't interested or maybe they have nothing, God's people are to give to them. The invitation to you is have a party and then do it with mission. 
The gospel should come with a house key in our life to where suddenly our home is not just open to our friends and our families. Even people who don't believe have them in our homes. We are the people who make space at the table for people who aren't like us, who people who might not even like us, and people we don't even know that well. I'm not saying put your kids in danger. I'm saying make room for a stranger. Can I get an amen? I want to be the rhyming pastor. That's my big hope in life. The gospel makes a doorway called hospitality to everyone around us. You will see a Christian when you see someone that says there's always room at my table, at my lunch table at work, at the playgroup with my kids, at school that they sit next to the less cool kids, that they go find the international student who doesn't know anyone and say, I'm here. I'm here for the lonely. I'm here for the lost. I'm here for the leaders. I'm here for everyone in between. I'm here to make space for you. And that's what they're doing. They're sending things away. They're making space. And third thing we see here in the application is now, because now they understand the worlds that have been made known to them, they obey. They obey. They leave here. They stop weeping. They throw a party. And then they get ready for the Feast of Booths. And Garrison's going to get into that next week, what the Feast of Booths is. But basically they say what's in the book, and that's what's in the book for that month on the Jewish calendar they obey. Because we learn when we are running on the joy of God, we long to obey because we only get more God. Even when that obedience is hard, even when going back and saying we're sorry for something crazy is hard, even when we have to, uh, to eat our words, even when we have to change our ways, we do it out of joy. We obey. We don't obey to get God. We obey because we have God. We don't earn our way into God's family. We obey because we're already in God's family. And that's the difference of Christianity. Almost every religion says, earn your way in. Jesus says, I've earned your way in. Now let's live together. Let's feast together. Let's party together. Let's be on mission together. And let's obey by the will of the Father forever. But I want to be real with you today. Because I know some of y'all are like, "Um, I don't even know you, Justin. But I can tell you this. I'm not hungry for God's word at all. My spouse, my friend, my roommate just drugged me here. I don't want to be here. I miss coffee on the way in. The last thing I'm thinking about is God's endless joy overflowing and the triune God pouring into my life. Honestly, Justin, I have no idea what you're talking about. Or maybe you're saying, Justin, I haven't obeyed in such a long time. I'm not even sure how to get back on track. And I'm pretty sure God's joy isn't my strength. I'm pretty sure I have no idea what the joy of God is anymore. I'm pretty sure I've been so wounded by by maybe the church or maybe a friend or maybe a pastor or maybe whatever it is for so long that I have no idea what you're talking about. You might as well be speaking Chinese to me. And I want to say to you today, have you ever seen a marathon? So in Louisville, they throw this big marathon. It's called the Louisville Marathon. It's very creative. That's what we're known for in the Derby City. We're known for deep creativity. And the thing is, the Louisville Marathon actually runs around my house. So my house is bookended on either side of the street by barricades and police cars. So I literally can't go anywhere. I step outside to my left and my right. I'm not leaving. My car's not leaving. My family's not leaving. So instead of being sad that I can't go anywhere on Saturday morning, I've decided, kids, we're all going to cheer on the runners. Why? Because that's what everyone's doing. There's all these people running by. And early in the morning, marathons kind of move in three stages. The first stage, people who run their marathon in two to four hours. 
And these people are in beast mode. They got all the right gear on. They got numbers proudly on them. They want to know I'm first in my age group. And you can tell. It's like, dude, you are working out. Lady, you are working out. Good for you. They are motoring to finish a marathon in two to four hours, to run over 20 miles in that time. And the thing is, the streets are packed for those people. People are clapping, they're cheering, they're playing music. They're like flipping Gatorade at dudes. They, you know, it's very informal in Louisville. <laughs> you know, it's not professional like Boston or New York. But they are having a blast. And then there's a second group, the four to eight hour group. And that's where everyone else is, the, the in shape, but I'm not a marathon runner guy and gal. And they're crushing it. But the crowds start to dwindle as the hours go by. And they actually pick up the barricades at about 2 p.m. After the eight-hour mark, they remove the barricades, traffic resumes. But the thing is, the race isn't done for some. There's this whole other group that they're mostly walking by this point. The sun is high and hot in late April in Louisville. They're drenched in sweat. They're exhausted. There's no one cheering. There's no one giving Gatorade. There's no high fives for the the children. And the irony is the people who actually need the encouragement are those 8, 9, 10, 11 hour people. The people who run the marathon in two to four hours don't need a lot of encouragement. And when we think about our spiritual life, I think we think that God's joy is just for those who run the marathon in two to four hours. That we think they get more joy, more of God's joy than anyone else. Maybe the John Pipers of the world or the Beth Moores of the world or the Garrison Green or your elders or your community group leaders, that they get a little more joy, that God's more satisfied, God's more excited for them. God's giving his joy as their stronghold and their strength to them. But I'm here to tell you, I think God's clapping along for them, but I actually think God is more like the dad, that it's hour 10, and he is walking on the sidewalk alongside his son. And his son is the guy who's lost 50 pounds this year, but he honestly has 100 more to go. And he promised himself, if I made it this far, I'm going to do the marathon this year, even if it takes me all day. And God is like the dad who isn't leaving his son. It doesn't care that traffic's resume. He doesn't care that people are trying to get around him. He's not ashamed of his son who's now covered in blood on his knees because he's fallen so many times. He doesn't care that his son smells. He doesn't care that they look strange. He doesn't care at all because God is saying, if you're running the race with me, I'm not leaving at all. I have no plans to leave. I am 0% embarrassed of you because my joy is for you. We think God's joy is for all the winners who are killing it on Instagram. And the truth is, God is with all the people who are losers and feel like losers because they're not losers in God's kingdom. Because whoever will be last will be first. If you're struggling, I got good news. You have a Savior today. If you don't think you're struggling, I got bad news. You might not have a Savior at all. Because when we look at the Bible, we see God is holy, we are not, and that Christ is a really good deal, and he's come for me. And so I'm saying the marathon's for you. God's joy is for you. Whether you're having the best season of your life or the worst, hang on. Keep walking. Because remember I said that 13 years ago thing? These people were not the cream of the crop. They were the opposite. They were the ones that they let out of Babylon that said, see ya. They were the ones who the Babylonians didn't even take in the first place because they were so worthless in the eyes of the Babylonians. These are the people who needed constant encouragement. They had to have their lives cleaned up by the law. They struggled to get the walls up. They struggled to live. They complained at Nehemiah. These are not some glorious people. 
These are people chosen by God where he says, I'm going to be their father no matter what. And we're going to finish the race. So let God's joy be your strength today. When you read God's word, let the terroir be that God's joy is overflowing to you today. When you read scripture, it is taking you there. That scripture originates in the God of joy. And he longs to let you taste it in the scripture. Taste the sweetness of the honey to take you home. Yes, we should weep and mourn over our sin. But we should also skip in delight at the love of our Savior. Yes, we should weep and mourn at our sin. When we see it, forsake it. We see it, confess it. We see it, tell God, tell a friend, and forsake it and turn. But no, do not weep forever because God's mercy is new in the morning. And God's love and his joy is for you today. Whether you're crushing it and winning gold medals for Jesus, or you have no idea how you're going to finish the race, God's going to take you home. And that's his promise, just like he took these exiles home, and rebuilt Jerusalem. We invite JJ up to lead you in communion.